Well, beloved, it's very good to be with you. Uh, Pastor Lance, as many of you know, is in Jupiter, Florida, uh, preaching for Pastor Jerry Rag, and uh, got to live stream his service a little bit this morning. Uh, strongly recommend you go listen to it. Psalm 39, talking about life being like a vapor. Uh, you, you have to go listen to that. Um, but I have the privilege of preaching this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. It's the same passage I read for our scripture reading, but we'll only be looking at verses 1 through 11 uh, in detail this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, 1 through 11. Isaiah 40 has been a passage that has been very near and dear to my heart, and I'll uh, share a little bit about that with you during the sermon, just some personal examples, but uh, it's been sort of with me for the last 19 years. (laughs) It makes me feel very old to say that. Uh, 19 years ago, first exposed to these truths through song, of all things, through Handel's Messiah. And uh, I look forward to sharing a little bit about that with you. But Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, we already read the passage. Let Let me introduce what we'll be talking about today with a little historical example. The Battle of Dunkirk was one of the greatest military disasters and victories of the Second World War. By May of 1940, the German Blitzkrieg had pushed the French and British armies all the way to the English Channel and were threatening to obliterate them and take them prisoner. For nine long days, the German Air Force and army harassed the stranded soldiers on the beach who had little hope of rescue. They could only wait and watch and pray for deliverance. When all seemed lost, it was in that darkest hour that hundreds of smaller private British ships, fishing vessels, private yachts, sloops, and trawlers came to the rescue of the embattled Allied army and assisted with the evacuation by shuttling them to the larger Navy ships so they could escape. Pretty amazing. Sadly, not all the soldiers were rescued. Thousands of Allied forces who were cut off and not able to be rescued, were eventually killed or captured. In the aftermath of Dunkirk, with the threat of invasion of the British Isles by the seemingly unstoppable Nazi onslaught, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave his famous address to the House of Commons on June 4, 1940, mere hours after the last stragglers were plucked from the beach at Dunkirk. His was a message of comfort and hope at the outset, of one of the darkest hours in British history. And here's a a very brief excerpt of what he said. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Churchill's words, though comforting as they were to the British people, pale in comparison to the words of the God of all comfort to his people in the passage 
we'll be looking at this morning pale in comparison. As inspiring as that was, God's word, God's words in Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 are that much more incredible and that much more comforting. So if you haven't already, Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11, we're going to be looking at these 11 verses and my title for this message is the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. We can all relate to going through various difficult trials And when in those trials, we need our God of comfort. Do we not? Isaiah chapter 40 is a salvation message in the great promised plan of God for his people. Now, when we parachute into context, especially in the Old Testament passage, we need to set up the context. Where are we? What is going on? what's, What's the historical background here? Where does Isaiah fit in the context of the entire Old Testament Where does it fit in God's plan for his people? So I'm going to briefly describe some of this background background information to better assist us understand what we're looking at here in Isaiah chapter 40. Well, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in all of the New Testament. Where does Isaiah fit in the context of the Old Testament? We find ourselves in the latter days of the kings of Judah, long after the kingdom of Israel was already divided uh, with Judah, and also during the time when Israel has already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Where are we in the life and ministry of the prophet Isaiah? Well, Isaiah wrote during the time in Israel and Judah's history, when the Lord was swiftly bringing judgment upon them for their rampant unrepentant, multi-generational wickedness after centuries of warnings. Because of their wickedness and their rebellion, the Lord would see fit to take their land away from them and send them into exile into foreign lands as a means of what? Of softening their hearts and bringing them back to himself. In fact, Judah was exiled one century later from this, from when this passage was written, and it was exiled under the kings Jehoiakim and then later Zedekiah in 586 BC. Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11 is a message of hope to the exiles once they come back from their exile. Isaiah as a whole, let's look at Isaiah briefly and understand where chapter 40 fits in with the entire book. Chapters 1 through 39 cover the wickedness and sin of both the kingdom of Israel and of Judah and the commissioning of Isaiah as a prophet from God to the people of Judah. It also focuses on the coming judgment of Judah because of her wickedness, rampant wickedness. It also covers the judgment of the neighboring nations around Judah and the future judgment upon all the earth. A lot of judgment in in Isaiah versus, uh, excuse me, chapters 1 through 39. A lot of judgment. But... In chapter 40, there is an abrupt transition. Something changes. In Isaiah 40, the message goes from one of condemnation to comfort, from warnings to worship. In fact, Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 is a message of hope and comfort to the people of Jerusalem concerning their future salvation, their future comfort from the king of kings. And Isaiah 40, specifically our passage today, verses 1 through 11, sets the tone for that message. So that's the context within the Old Testament, that's the context within the book, and even within this uh, smaller section within Isaiah. 
It's a message of comfort and coming salvation to a people who have yet to experience the judgment and separation they will need this comforting for. Isn't it amazing? It demonstrates God's grace in giving us a message of comfort before we even experience that which we will need comforting from. Isn't that incredible? It reminds me of Psalm 23 where it says, and, and, and I lack nothing. I will never enter into a state of lacking. Even before we enter into a state of lacking, God is going to provide. In regards to prophecy, there's a lot of prophecy in Isaiah and specifically in our passage today. So in terms of prophecy, it is very critical to understand that all prophecy was given at a certain time in a certain context through a certain vessel, to a certain people, and for a certain purpose. We also understand that often a prophecy delivered by a prophet was not only fulfilled in that immediate context, but oftentimes uh, in the near future. In, in, In this case, this passage was fulfilled two centuries later as the exiles are coming back from exile. And also, there can be fulfillment in the distant future, In this case, seven centuries from the time this passage was penned until it was fulfilled in the person of Christ. And even for us, there are even aspects of this passage that still have not been completely fulfilled because they will be fulfilled with the second coming of Christ. Present, future, distant future, fulfillment of prophecy. It's pretty incredible. As I mentioned before, Isaiah chapter 40 is a salvation message in the great promise plan of God for his people. And I've, in my study of this passage, it's pretty clear that there are, there are four sections in verses one through 11, four stanzas, if you will. And those four would be verses one and two. And I've titled that, Recognize God as the Comforting Redeemer. The second one in verses three through five is Respond with Repentance. The third, verses six through eight, is remember your roots. And finally, verses nine through 11, rejoice in the return of the king. A couple of things I want you to notice as we work through this passage, a couple of interesting patterns. I want you to pay attention to the voices we're gonna hear in this passage. Pay attention to the word cry in this passage. Pay attention to uh, two different sections repeated again and again, maybe in a slightly different way, but repetition is important. Word repetition is important. There are, there are patterns in this passage. It is beautiful. We don't have enough time to dive into every single aspect of this passage. Uh, I trust it will be helpful to you, but just keep an eye on for those things. Keep an eye out as we, as we dive in. Let's begin. Verse one. Verse one, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. This is a a message of great love from God for his people. Notice the the intimate relationship between God and his people. He doesn't say, comfort you people from God. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. There is relationship there. There is connection, there is history, there's an intimate relationship between God and his people. The word comfort can also be translated consolation. Be consoled, be encouraged, be comforted. This is clearly a command from God to the prophets in Judah. Comfort my people, it's a command, it's an imperative. Comfort 
my people. Why? They're going to need comfort. When they emerge from this judgment, when they emerge from the exile, they are going to need comfort. And God is saying, comfort my people. Luke 2.25, thinking about comfort, thinking about consolation, there's an interesting verse in Luke 2, verse 25, that says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. What does this mean? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. Simeon said, I have seen the Messiah, and now I can go ahead and die. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Isaiah 51, verse 12, God says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? We'll be talking about people being like grass very, very shortly. Now in verse two, verse two says this, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, there's that word, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, warfare is probably better translated as hardship. God is saying, hey, the time of exile is going to come to an end. Again, beloved, remember, this was written before the exile, a century before the exile. The people had been wicked for generations upon generations. There had been warnings for generations. They had, they had ignored the warnings. Judgment is coming. A century before the exile begins, two centuries before they even come back, and God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And notice those three things. Notice three areas of encouragement for Jerusalem at the end of their exile. The first one, encourage her. Her warfare, her hardship, her slavery is ended. Number two, her iniquity is pardoned. And number three, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The return of the exiles from exile is prophesied in Jeremiah 25, verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, God says, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. What an encouragement for the people who are heading into exile knowing judgment is coming but that judgment will not last forever and there will be comfort and encouragement at the end of that. So our first section here, verses one and two, is recognizing God as the comforting redeemer. He is a God of comfort. He is a God of redemption. He loves his people. And like a good heavenly father, he he does have to allow judgment. He does have to exact discipline upon us, ultimately for our good, to bring us closer to him. And yet, like a good father, not just dwelling on the judgment and dwelling on the discipline and leaving us there to die, which is what we deserve. He shows us grace and mercy and he comforts us. He comforts us in the midst of that discipline, in the midst of that trial. Recognize God as the comforting redeemer. Our second section now, in verses three through five, respond with repentance. Respond with repentance. It says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 3 is cited by all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? It must be important if all four Gospel authors include it in their Gospels. It's included in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Mark 1.3, Luke 3.4, and John 1.23. Even Malachi uh, has echoes of this. In Malachi 3.1 and 2, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? There's a sense of preparation in looking ahead at the return of the king. After the exile, the people will return to the land. That's been promised. It's been prophesied. It was fulfilled. We know that. We can look 2,500 years back, 2,400 years back, and know that it did happen. Notice again in verse 3, there's that voice. There's a voice crying. What is this voice crying? It says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 35 includes similar similar terminology. Isaiah 35 verses eight through 10 says, and a highway shall be there, and it it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Interesting. What's this highway? What is this preparation What's this topographical upheaval? Isaiah 57, 14 says, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Psalm 68, verse four, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. So we know from New Testament history and New Testament uh, scripture, we know who this voice is in verse three. How do we know that? Well, in Matthew three, verses one through three, we know it's John the Baptist. How do we know that? Thankfully, it's very, very clear. It says in Matthew three, one through three, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist was that voice. Now again, immediate context. Immediate context fulfillment. Judah is exiled 70 years Now they can return to the land. And there's a lot of imagery here about the way being prepared for them, both safety-wise and just enabling them to return to Jerusalem. But 
we also have a future fulfillment in the person of John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Christ himself. But again, beloved, there's a distant future fulfillment yet to come. The king is coming. Is this talking about the birth of Christ? Or is this talking about his second coming? His second coming. This is future prophecy yet unfulfilled about the second coming of Christ. John was a voice being faithful to his call, preparing the way for Jesus. And yet, there is something else coming. The king is coming. Let's look at verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Massive, topographical upheaval. (laughs) We know about earthquakes here in California. The worst California earthquake will pale in comparison to what is going to happen when Jesus comes again. So this is, of course, a message of physical and spiritual preparation for the king's arrival. Of course, there are physical ramifications for the people returning to Jerusalem 70 years later, but there's not just geographical and topographical ramifications, there's primarily spiritual ramifications for the people returning to the land. How so? It's not just we're gonna go back to the land and the way will be made clear and we'll go right back to the way we were and it's gonna be just fine. No, not at all. Think through these things in terms of not just the land being prepared, but but the people preparing their own hearts in submission to God. They've just gone through 70 years of judgment. You would think that they would want to change their hearts and not go back to their former ways. Sadly, we know that 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 indeed did happen. So there's spiritual preparation ramifications. And of course, as I mentioned before, there are ramifications here of physical, topographical, geographical, geographical, and spatial upheaval when the king of kings comes in all his glory at his second coming. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that time. It's gonna be incredible, it's gonna be scary, but it's gonna be magnificent and glorious when Jesus touches down. Wow, I can't wait for that. Now. The descendants of Isaiah's listeners, just seven centuries later, this is during the time of Christ, were called to prepare their hearts again for the Son of Man through John the Baptist's message, right? His, his message was one of preparation, preparation, repentance. The king is coming. Remember he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John became less while Christ became more. John was a messenger. He was a preparation messenger. And so this was even fulfilled in John the Baptist's ministry as well. And yet there are also future ramifications for all of us to prepare our hearts in keeping with repentance as we anticipate and look forward to Jesus' second coming and the ushering in of the last days on the earth before the final judgment and the making of all things new. Isaiah 49 verse 11 says, and I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. You know, this also reminds me, there's, there's shadows, there's, there's foretelling, there's, there's shadows of what would come later in terms of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? You remember that when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, of course he, he entered in a very humble way on the, on the back of a, of a donkey, but 
the people weren't just crowding around and he, he didn't have to press through the crowd to get to where he was going. What did they do? They prepared the way for him. How did they do that? Palm branches on the ground, preparing a road for him, taking their very own cloaks, putting them on the ground, preparing the way for him. There's some, there's some fulfillment of that prophecy even right there, right? Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Prepare the way. The king is coming. We must prepare the way. Verse 5. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is this talking about? The glory of the Lord being revealed. All flesh seeing it together. Well, of course, again, and I don't, don't mean to, to uh, talk about this and, and feel like we're beating a dead horse, but, but we have to remember there is, there is immediate context. There is future fulfillment. There is even distant future fulfillment that hasn't happened yet. We have to understand that as we're looking at these things. So this is, of course, not only talking about the Lord being glorified in the return of his people to Jerusalem, which did happen. It's not only talking about, of course, the birth of Christ and and him uh, being born as one of us and and, uh, coming in flesh and and him receiving glory in that. That is, of course, true. But verse 5 has primarily is primarily focusing on Jesus' second coming again. When all flesh, did all flesh see Christ when he was born on the earth? No, not all flesh saw him. Were we all together when we saw that, those, those things? No, no. So some of us saw him, some of us saw it together, but, but when will all flesh see it together? When's that going to happen? When will the glory of the Lord be re- revealed in such a way that we will all see it together? It'd have to be the second coming. It'd have to be. All flesh will see it together. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's in Philippians 2. All flesh will see it together. And so, beloved, We not only need to recognize God as the comforting redeemer, but we have to respond with repentance. Responding with repentance is the only way that we can prepare our hearts. Just like the people of Judah were to prepare their hearts as they were returning to the land after their time of exile, not only as the people of Israel and Judah were to prepare their hearts in anticipation of the coming Messiah through John the Baptist's message, and of course, not only our day-to-day lives, but we, we, we've got to be repenting every single day. We have to respond with repentance. Now, verses 1 through 5. I mentioned a personal connection with, with these verses. Verses 1 through 5. I, I trust that many of you are at least a little bit familiar with George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, written in the mid-18th century. It is one of my favorite pieces of music. Uh, Handel was uh, a man used by God to take scripture, verbatim scripture, nothing in this work is anything but scripture. And God ordained that this man, George Friedrich Handel, uh, born in Germany but worked primarily in England, that he would write a work called Messiah. It spotlights Jesus as the promised Messiah and 
Yes, the song begins with the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 40. I was 12 years old. We, uh, my parents were missionaries overseas in Bangladesh, over there by India. And we had come back for our first one-year furlough. And a few months later, you know, I'm being homeschooled, and we're kind of figuring out how do we do life in America. I'm learning how to wear shoes again. I wasn't very good at wearing shoes. My parents said, Shane, you've got to wear shoes in America, okay? You can't just go to Walmart with no shoes. Although in Florida, you probably could. Um, but, so I'm 12 years old, and a few weeks before Christmas, my dad says, hey, everyone, uh, this night, Friday night, we're all going to drive about an hour north to Vero Beach, and we're going to go listen to Handel's Messiah. Now I'm a 12-year-old boy who's learning how to wear shoes. And I said, what is that? What is this Handel guy, Messiah, did What's, what, what is this all about? So I have to get dressed up. I've got to put a tie on. I've never dressed up this much. My dad's making a big deal of it. We're all like, why are we going here? What's happening? We pile in the car. We get some dinner on the way. We arrive, and it's in a church. It's in a, a pretty sizable uh, church there in Vero Beach where they do an annual Messiah concert. And we're all like, what are we doing here? This is, this is not what we were looking for. It's Friday night. Can we go watch a movie or something? My dad said, no, 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 no. Everyone sit down. Trust me. This is going to be good. And I was brought to tears this morning thinking about this because he was right. What I heard that night changed my life. I was an unbeliever. I didn't know Christ. But the music that we heard changed the way I viewed scripture. And it began a journey for me that was not completed through salvation until about eight years later. But it has forever burned Isaiah 40 into my mind. Why? Because Handel's Messiah begins, there's this overture and it's beautiful. And then the male opera singer, I'm not very good at musical terms. I'm sure Joel could help me out. But But the first guy comes up, and the first words out of his mouth are, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And I really want you to go home today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up on YouTube, and just close your eyes. It's about a six-minute thing, and it's incredible. It changed my life. And the first year, it was, oh, okay, thanks, Dad. That's helpful. Okay, and then we did it year after year. And if we were in Florida, we'd go back to the same place where we heard it, If we were overseas in Bangladesh, we would light a nice fire in the fireplace and we'd invite all of our missionary and national team members over for the evening. We'd have food and we would just listen to it. And my favorite part of the year, especially around Christmas time, was sitting in a comfy chair, closing my eyes and listening to Handel's Messiah. And the best part of it is that every single part of it is straight scripture. There's nothing, there's no extra padding in there. It's just scripture talking about Jesus and the prophecies foretelling his birth and his actual birth and his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. If you still don't know what I'm talking about, you may have heard the Hallelujah Chorus. That's where that comes from is Handel's Messiah. I won't sing it for you. They wouldn't let me. But uh, man, uh, talk about putting scripture to song. It's such a personal connection between me, between myself and Isaiah 40, and I just love it. I love it. So 
something that I want to bring to my own family, something I want to give to my own children. It, it was a seemingly insignificant thing that day in December of 2001. 19 years ago, no, almost 19 years ago. Uh, but it has, it has, it, it set me on a course. It, like I said, it, it seared in my mind Isaiah chapter 40. Pretty amazing. So, beloved, we have talked through the first two points. We must recognize God as the comforting redeemer, and we also must respond with repentance. And now, as we look at verses six through eight, beloved, we need to remember our roots. And I mean that literally and figuratively. We need to know where we have come from. We need to know where we are going. That is going to impact how we live, isn't it? We must remember our roots. Verses 6 through 8 read as follows. A voice says, cry. There it is again. Another voice, crying. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A couple of things. Again, there's that voice again, a voice saying, cry. And then Isaiah saying, what shall I cry? What shall I cry? I love Isaiah's honesty. I don't know what to say. Tell me what to say and I'll say it. And then the response is, all flesh is grass. Notice for a minute the structure of verses 6 through 8. Notice that there's repetition. Notice there's, there's parallelism. And in scripture, as we know, when anything is said uh, twice, if it's repeated, it means pay attention. Something important is being said here. We need to take note. So in verse 6b, it says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. But then look again at verse 7b. It says, surely the people are grass. It repeats, people are grass. Surely the people are grass. Yes, beloved, we are like grass. Nothing glorious about it, nothing incredible about it. We are like grass. And then also note in verse 7, talking about the grass withering and the flower fading. It's, it's almost verbatim repeated twice. Verse seven, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And then verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades. Okay, yes, Isaiah, we heard you the first time. Ooh, it changes a little bit. The first time it says in verse seven, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, but in verse eight, it says, but the word of our God will stand forever. Notice that contrast. A couple of things to note. Of course, again, the voice crying. There's a voice. Truth is only transported through voices, through sound. When it says all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field, the word beauty could also be translated and understood as the word constancy. Our lives are just as constant as a flower. Flowers are beautiful. Flowers grow in the field. They bloom, oh, so beautiful, and then it dies. And then the next one comes up, and the next one, and it's there one day, gone the next. There one day, gone the next. So our constancy is like the flower of the field. But also, it could also even be said that our beauty really is like the flower of the field. It's there one day, it's gone the next. 
as Pastor Lance was preaching this morning in Jupiter, Florida, Psalm 39, life is like a vapor. Life is a vapor. Here one day, gone the next. Our constancy is fading. Notice also, it talks about the breath of the Lord. The breath of the Lord. The grass withers, verse seven. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. I think you could take this in two different ways. Number one, literal wind. Nature, rain, sunshine, wind. Flowers fading in the sunlight. Flowers fading in the wind. But I think there's something much deeper here that we have to understand. The breath of the Lord. I think, based on the context, that this is God's sovereignty. It's God's sovereignty. The breath of the Lord. We don't have any control over that. We're the grass. We don't control the wind. We're not in charge of, our, of, of when we begin or even when we end. The breath of the Lord is that sovereign, loving, graceful, merciful, but still sovereign will of our God. He's in charge. We're not. He is God. We're not. We are like grass. We are like grass. We lived in Florida for about just under two years, and we left for a trip one time. And for whatever reason, the one zone of our irrigation went out. It was an electrical issue, and we came back. And our lawn, after one week of no water, was crispy brown. I would walk on it, it kind of hurt my feet. It was like the grass that everyone has in California, right? It was gone. And as soon as I saw that, I said, Isaiah 40, there it is. It, It was there last week, no water for seven days, crispy brown. I don't even remember if it even came back. But... But that's such an incredible picture of our life. There one week, gone the next. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19 says this. As for man, his days are, yes, like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. What about Genesis 3? Genesis 3, 17 through 19, talking about the curse as a result of the fall. God says, cursed is the ground because of you, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. The word Adam has to do with dust. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. How appropriate. And uh, as I pick back up in Genesis 3, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Very appropriate. Have to remember our roots. I think it's very interesting how the Lord reminds us where we came from, the dirt and the dust, and that because of the fall, we must work the cursed ground and produce food for ourselves from the plants of the earth. In the end, this is interesting, we will return to the ground in the same way the plants that we ourselves consume do. How humbling is that? Dust to dust, Ashes to ashes. Now, at the end of verse 8, notice the stark contrast between 
the descriptions of man and God's word. It says that man passes away like grass, but, verse 8b, but the word of our God will stand forever. Boy, that's encouraging. As we live our our days like grass, as we live our years like flowers, here one day, gone the next, nothing is for sure. I'm here, you're here, I may not be here tomorrow, we don't know. God's in charge, the breath of the Lord blows over all of us, but we know that God's word will stand forever. God's word will stand forever. It is not temporary. It is not passing away. It is not here one day and gone the next. It will be here forever. Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Beloved, we need to remember our roots. We need to recognize God as the comforting redeemer. We need to respond with repentance, and we need to remember our roots. And finally, in terms of the fourth stanza, We need to rejoice in the return of the king, verses 9 through 11. We need to rejoice in the return of the king. Verses 9 through 11 says this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Beloved, while there are glimpses of the person and character of Christ and his first advent 700 years after these verses were written, The details we find in verses 9 through 11 have much more to do with his second advent, that is his second coming. The Lord Jesus will come as a comforting redeemer, conquering king, wrathful avenger, and tender shepherd. Yes, he will do all those things because he is all those things. Notice a couple of things in terms of, again, just just the structure, better understanding what's going on here. Look at verse 9. There's, a, there's a, re, a, a repeated phrase here again. In verse 9 it says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. I mentioned be on the lookout for the theme of crying, uh, calling out, proclaiming, a voice crying. Well, I see this here again when it says lift up your voice with strength. If we say lift up your voice with strength, we're not talking about whispering or mumbling, or love you, Lord. That's not lifting up your voice with strength. If we're lifting up our voice with strength, we say, behold your God. That's lifting up your voice with strength, isn't it? So there's voices crying, there's people crying, Isaiah is asking what he should say, there's a message that has to get through, and in verse 9b it says, lift up your voice with strength. And then again it says, lift it up, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried about fear of man. Fear not. Lift up your voice with strength and with great confidence, knowing that your message, Isaiah, comes from the Lord himself. No fear. Preach it, brother. Right? So again, look at this repeated phrase. It says, go on up, O Zion. And O Zion, Zion, of course, is a synonym for Jerusalem. He says it twice. 
Go on up, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, paralleling to O Zion. Again, herald of good news. What is this talking about? God is sovereignly ordaining that his people and that Jerusalem in particular be a beacon of light to the nations, being the place where Christ will rule again during the millennial kingdom. He's coming again. Jerusalem has had its place in history. It will yet have more time and more exposure and it will have a very central and important role in the salvation plan of God. Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, O Zion, Uh, Jerusalem, you are my herald of good news, God is saying. And it even says in a very sort of a great commission fashion, almost like a missionary uh, fashion, hey, say to the other cities of Judah, you, Jerusalem, the beacon of light, full of my people, I'm gonna use you in a powerful way. Say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. Behold your God. Behold your God. I love that. Isaiah 52, verses seven through nine says this. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes or proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord is not only a a wrathful avenger, he is not only a faithful shepherd, as we'll talk about in a minute, but he is the great comforter. He is our great redeemer. The Lord has comforted his people. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, Behold, The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. What's this talking about? Revelation 22, verse 12 says, this is the words of Jesus, by the way. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The very words of Jesus. Recompense. What does recompense mean? It has to do with either payment, which there is element, an element of payment here, but it really has to do with reward. What is the reward of Christ? What is the reward of the Lord? What is it? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's us, his church, his people, the people who he has redeemed, who he has given his life for, the the people who he was born among and lived among and gave us his word and died for us to atone atone for our sin. He is the one who was raised on the third day. He is the one who is sitting at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting for the day that only the Father knows to return and and have his reward, his bride, the church, his people. We are his recompense. Now, what is this talking about? His arm, his arm rules for him. He comes with might. What is this talking about? The Lord's arm, of course, signifies his power and might to rule his people, to protect them from their enemies 
and to bring swift and terrifying judgment upon those who oppose him. Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The arm, again, signifying power and might, swift judgment. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, thinking about the Lord and, and us being his uh, recompense, his reward, and he's coming from somewhere, he's going somewhere, we're kind of fitting into that. It really reminds me of 2 Corinthians 2, 14, which says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in what? Triumphal procession. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. We are his reward. We are in his triumphal procession. We are his redeemed. And just like the generals of old would return to Rome with all their spoils of war and all their prisoners and all their plunder and we won the battle and here's all of our glory in the same way, Christ will return to Jerusalem not with plunder and, and, and victory in, in that sense or, or uh, slaves, but, but we as slaves of Christ, we are going to be the ones who are with him in that triumphal procession. We are his reward. That's verse 10. And finally, verse 11. Verse 11, it's, it's a very interesting way to end this section, and, and yet it's very much in keeping with God's character. It, there's, a, there's a touch of gentleness and comfort it, personifying Christ as the great shepherd. He, he is our great shepherd, isn't he? In verse 11, it says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will... Uh, gently lead those that are with young. Notice the four verbs there. He will tend his flock, gather the lambs, he will carry them, and he will lead them. Exactly what a shepherd is supposed to be doing. Tending, gathering, carrying, and leading. Jesus has the heart of a great shepherd. He longs to gather his people together. He longs to be their shepherd. It reminds me of Psalm 23. I mean, that's just plain and obvious. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What about Matthew 23, 37 through 39? In this passage, we get a glimpse of of the heart of Christ and his compassion for his people and specifically Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem has a very special place in the heart of Jesus. And in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus says this. He's mourning Jerusalem. 700 years after they've heard the message from Isaiah, they've gone through exile, they've returned from exile, they're supposed to be honoring the Lord, the Pharisees are, are very much in control, and there's hypocrisy and all kinds of nonsense, and 400 years of silence, and then Christ is born, and Jerusalem is not what she is supposed to be. And so in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus says this, he's mourning, he's mourning for his people. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, we know that the temple was ultimately destroyed as well, much later. (sighs) So sad. And yet we see the heart of Jesus caring for his children. John 10 Verse 7, and I'm going to read a, a short passage here from John 10, beginning in verse 7. Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd. John 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that the truth? And he says in verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We catch a glimpse of Christ, the good shepherd, just like we did in Psalm 23 and in Matthew 23. He is the good shepherd. He is going to tend, gather, carry, and lead us. And so verses 9 through 11, as we've seen, encourage us to look ahead, to rejoice in the return of the king. Rejoice in the return of the king. As we've seen today, the prophet Isaiah has given us a message of comfort, a message of comfort that fits perfectly with no issues or discrepancies or, 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 or problems. Isaiah has given us a message of comfort that fits perfectly into the salvation plan of God for his people. What does this passage have to do with us as New Testament believers looking ahead to the second coming of Christ? Well, we've talked about this a little bit, but we do have the advantage of looking back nearly three millennia and seeing the faithfulness of our great comforter, redeemer, and how he fulfilled perfectly everything the prophet Isaiah recorded, both in the immediate context of the return of the exiles to their land and in the persons of John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ, in the person of Christ and his work. Hundreds of years later, 700 years later, Isaiah wrote. uh, he, He wrote these things, and seven centuries later, they were fulfilled. And now, beloved, we have the privilege the grand privilege of anticipating the second coming of Christ. We have seen him faithfully fulfill everything in the past. We know his character, and we can look ahead at what is yet to come. 
we can get a glimpse of what that will be like when he returns to gather his people to himself. This is his salvation message to us in the great promise plan of God. Beloved, we need to recognize God as the comforting redeemer. We need need to prepare the way to respond with repentance. We need to remember where we've come from. We need to remember our roots, where we've come from, who we are, and where we're going. And finally, we need to rejoice in the return of the king. The only appropriate response that I can think of is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? Can't wait for those days. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of your prophet Isaiah. It astounds us to think that as he wrote these words, inspired by you yourself, writing these words of comfort and encouragement to a people who had much longer to go before they even experienced the judgment that these words would comfort them for. And we look ahead even at the birth and death and resurrection of Christ and the fulfillment there. We look ahead now to the second coming of Christ. And of course, for us as believers, we look ahead to the, to the rapture of believers before the, before the tribulation even starts. Lord, we, we are feeling the birth pains. We are feeling things are changing. We know we live in a very sin-sick world. And we are so encouraged and comforted by this message. Lord, we're, we're grateful for the great promised plan of God through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Judah before they're exiled, looking ahead at a message of comfort for those same people and for their descendants as they return from the exile. It's incredibly encouraging to us because we know that all of that was fulfilled perfectly. And we can look ahead at what is yet to come. Lord, we thank you for being the God of all comfort. Help us to, uh, boy, to, to remember all these things, Lord, as, as believers. Help us to rejoice in the return of the King as we look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to love each other. Help us to strive toward unity, to strive to love each other and to be a church and a people of God that is honoring to you. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to be, just like Jerusalem was called, to be a proclaimer of glad and good tidings to the cities in its surroundings. Lord, help us to be a a beacon of bright light, a beacon of hope to our, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues, to our community. Lord, we long for your return. We long to be honoring to you. Lord, may our fellowship now be honoring to you as well, and we just thank you again for your word and its clarity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.